This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Tom Oates with you here again. And this month, we are really happy to have been able to sit down and talk with Dr. Jerry Milner, the Associate Commissioner at the Children's Bureau, about approaching systemic change within child welfare, especially regarding foster care. And we are launching this episode in conjunction with National Foster Care Month 2020, which uh, is recognized each May. Now, National Foster Care Month 2020, the website, that is already live with information and resources for caregivers, child welfare professionals, community organizations, and those connected to foster care, including children and youth, to help create awareness and spread the word about the importance of supporting those families and young people impacted by foster care. You can head on over to the National Foster Care Month 2020 site at childwelfare.gov forward slash foster care month. And you can check out the site for yourself. So the theme for this year's National Foster Care Month is foster care as a support to families, not a substitute for parents, which actually repeats the theme from last year. And so we dive into why that's so with Dr. Milner, touching on the work to change the misconceptions and incorporating the perspectives of children, youth, and families who are involved in foster care. We also dive into what the federal government is doing from its position to help spark change and what he's hearing from those state and local child welfare agencies about the issues and trends that they are facing today. Now, Jerry's got more than 40 years of practice, management, and technical assistance in child welfare. Before taking over as Associate Commissioner of the Children's Bureau, he served as the Vice President for Child Welfare Practice at the Center for the Support of Families. And that's where he assisted state and local agencies in evaluating their child welfare programs and helped design and implement improvements in practice, policy, and procedures. Uh, Jerry also served as state child welfare director in Alabama and had a previous stint with the Children's Bureau, implementing and managing the child and family service reviews of state child welfare programs. Really glad to have the opportunity to have this conversation and to share it with you. So let's get right to it. We're chatting about systemic change in foster care with Associate Commissioner of the Children's Bureau, Dr. Jerry Milner. Dr. Jerry Milner, welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Thank you. So let's just start it off. We we're talking about National Foster Care Month and the Children's Bureau for the second year in a row is highlighting the theme of foster care as a support to families, not as a substitute for parents. Why the emphasis for the second straight year? You know, we were able to get uh, a lot of agreement around the need to move foster care uh, to be more of a support to families uh, at, at a very high level when, when we're going around the country talking about this, this whole concept. But actually moving a foster care system uh, to a place where it really is a, a true support for families requires very significant uh, systemic change. Uh, it goes to the very values, the very beliefs, 
that we have about families whose children may need uh, foster care and what the purpose uh, of foster care uh, is. It requires time, it requires, uh, requires commitment, um, and it requires a significant investment uh, of, of effort uh, to begin to make that change. We believe it's important uh, to do that, obviously, because we've seen so much success in this area. We've seen uh, communities that have implemented this strategy um, uh, where parents of children and uh, resource families, foster families are able to work successfully together to give children what they need to increase the chances that families can be reunited uh, to allow children to thrive even when it's not possible for them to live under the same roof with their parents for some uh, uh, temporary period of time. Um, in order to do that, we have to work hard to eliminate some of the misconceptions that parents whose children need foster care are inherently bad uh, or that resource families should not have uh, relationships uh, with, with parents. We know that when those relationships uh, are able to be there, that, uh, that parents have the opportunity to strengthen their ability to care for their children in safe ways. We know that the trauma of separating children from parents is reduced. Um, and we know that we have much greater opportunities for children and parents uh, to be reunited. So it's just overall critically important to us uh, to move our foster care system in the direction of being much more of a support to families rather than uh, uh, its more traditional role as a substitute for parents. So there's a lot under that big systemic change uh, umbrella. Yes. Uh, and so as we get into National Foster Care Month itself, what is the Children's Bureau looking at in terms of, all right, here are our most important priorities. Here are our most important goals when we think about National Foster Care Month. I, I think I can say hands down, um, preventing the need for foster care is our most important goal uh, for foster care. If we do our work um, to prevent children from having to suffer the trauma of maltreatment, uh, and if they do unfortunately suffer that trauma, to strengthen families to be able to care for them without uh, removal, then we will be taking giant steps toward preventing uh, the need for foster care to ever happen in the first place. Foster care should be seen as the absolute last resort uh, for maintaining uh, the safety of children. But historically, our, our programs have been funded and our policies have been oriented so that it becomes uh, in many situations, our, our first intervention uh, or our primary uh, intervention. And, and we want to change that uh, so that it's only used when it's absolutely necessary to protect uh, the safety and, and the health uh, of children. And, and, and the second priority is, is what we've, we've just discussed. When it is absolutely necessary, we want to make sure uh, that children, that uh, young people who come into the foster care system, have uh, as much of a normal experience as they can possibly have in what is uh, inherently an abnormal uh, situation. Uh, an another huge priority for us, uh, and this goes, I think, to our focus 
on adoption of, of older youth uh, and on uh, attending to the needs of youth who are in the foster care system. We'd like to get to the place in our country where aging out of the foster care system without permanency in the lives of children is simply not an option. Uh, we spend so much time uh, now preparing for aging out to occur. Uh, we'd like to see uh, that level of investment occur uh, in, in terms of ensuring that all children, young adults in the foster care system have permanency in their lives, have connections, have belongingness, uh, so that they uh, go out into the world after foster care with the critical supports uh, uh, that they absolutely need, that any of us really need. Yeah, and a lot of that, you know, you talked about systemic change is done at a policy level. It's done at a, it's done at a, uh, how we have our mindset, and it's done at a practical approach level for all of these states or counties or systems that are really implementing this, you know, on what we'd call, you know, the grassroots, the, the boots on the ground level. The Children's Bureau comes at this with a federal approach from the overarching, you know, seat that you have uh, in D.C. So, what are the concrete actions? that the Children's Bureau is able to take to kind of meet those goals that you just mentioned? Well, I think overall, the overall strategy has to be one that helps us to move as a child welfare system from being an almost exclusively reactive system to one that's much more proactive uh, in terms of strengthening the ability of parents to care for their children safely before foster care is ever necessary, before a report of child abuse and neglect uh, ever is made to a, a, a child abuse and neglect uh, hotline. That's a major role that I think the federal government can play. We have uh, a unique uh, ability uh, to, to be uh, the voice uh, of, change, of system change. Uh, we have the ability uh, where uh, we have flexibility in our funding, which is not always there, but to fund those kinds of efforts that help to move the system uh, in that, uh, in, in, in that uh, general direction. Um, in order to try to take advantage uh, of that unique position that we have in the federal government, uh, for about three years now, we have uh, worked as hard as we possibly can to uh, understand those programs that are working out there uh, that most closely resemble the kind of proactive uh, system that, uh, that we believe will serve children and families better. The more that we learn about those strategies, the more that we shine light on those communities, uh, those leaders, uh, those experiences, and those outcomes, the better chance that we have of making this something tangible, something real, for the, um, for the uh, child welfare system as a whole. Uh, a few months ago, uh, we issued guidance in the form of an information memorandum uh, that reflects a lot of the uh, lessons that we've learned over the last uh, two to three years here, uh, highlighting communities uh, that have seen that kind of success uh, and that are able to share their strategies uh, with, with others. We'll be coming forward uh, uh, very soon with other guidance that um, focuses on, um, uh, as we just talked about, treating foster care uh, as a service uh, to, uh, to, to families. We also uh, issued guidance on the importance of uh, 
the voice of people with lived experience, young adults who've been a part of the child welfare system, their parents, and how we begin to incorporate their voices and their experiences uh, into our policies, uh, into our funding decisions, into uh, all, all of our initiatives. These are things that all uh, align, uh, I, I think, to, to help us reimagine a child welfare system uh, that really is family focused, that recognizes, supports the integrity uh, of parent-child relationships uh, and the voices of those people who know the system uh, in ways that none of us really can uh, understand uh, the child welfare system. I want to remind folks listening that uh, if you go to childwelfare.gov and on the uh, show notes for this episode, we're going to put links out to the information memorandum that, that Jerry just mentioned, along with examples of really sharing those youth voices. So, Jerry, if anyone has ever heard you speak or has read anything of some of your statements, two words are going to pop up, and you've already said them a couple of times already, prevention and community. So when we start talking about um, foster care and we start talking about the system itself, we realize that, you know, child welfare, human services, the systems are all inter intertwined and within right. those communities. I know one of the areas that uh, we, we tend to not think about when we first glance at, you know, trying to make foster care uh, a support for families is the role of the legal and the judicial community as an active partner in child welfare planning. What's being done to actually kind of foster that partnership, foster that community sense between those agencies or those systems? Well, I would say a tremendous amount uh, is, is is happening there. Uh, again, for almost um, three years now, we um, have probably invested uh, equal effort um, in uh, the legal judicial community as we have the more traditional child welfare, child protection agency part uh, of, of, of the system, because we know inherently uh, that uh, different sectors of, of the broader child welfare community affect the lives of children and families every single day. It, it's not good enough uh, to say that a child welfare agency uh, needs to take on the prevention mantle or the foster care as a service to families uh, orientation uh, without the other key players uh, being uh, in, in, in similarly situated in terms of our values, our goals, and what it is that we hope to get out of the child welfare system. Uh, as many weeks as not, uh, uh, we're out there meeting with the national organizations uh, that represent the judiciary, that uh, represent um, attorneys who are involved in the child welfare system, whether it's for to represent children, parents, agencies, um, the whole court system, uh, individual judges and, and, and legal representation groups um, to try and advance this agenda uh, around primary prevention and uh, how we can reimagine the child welfare system. One of the more tangible things that we recently did uh, is, is to change a very long-standing policy uh, that we've had in the Children's Bureau that will allow states to use funds from our largest uh, pot of, of child welfare money, Title IV-E, to cover the costs associated with providing 
high quality legal representation to children and parents uh, in the child welfare system. We think that's one of the key ways that the voices of parents and children can be elevated uh, in the courtroom, in legal proceedings, uh, and that their desires, uh, their goals uh, uh, can be a part of the decision-making process as the courts and agencies uh, make decisions that affect uh, their uh, their very lives. Uh, we are trying uh, our hardest to link uh, the necessity for high quality legal representation to many of our existing statutory tools out there, such as uh, reasonable efforts requirements that have been on the books uh, for many, many years. Uh, the more children and parents have a voice, the more they are adequately um, represented in the court system, we believe the better opportunity uh, the courts have to make informed decisions around whether or not efforts have been made to actually prevent children from being removed from their parents, and when they are removed, uh, to make those efforts to get them reunified or into some other form of permanency on a timely, uh, uh, timely basis. We're also using uh, one of our strongest tools, which is a program improvement plan uh, that results from our child and family services reviews that we conduct in all the states uh, to incorporate in, in a, a number of situations uh, provisions for uh, states and, and, and local uh, agencies uh, to ensure that children and parents have access to high quality legal representation. So we're very excited about this work. I, I have to say that across the country, we've been getting um, a, a, an incredible reception uh, when we make those efforts uh, to include the judiciary, to include uh, the legal uh, community. And uh, it, it's just one of those areas where I, I feel like in a relatively short period of time, we've made tremendous progress. And encourage folks to think about um, that as also another way to really share the voice or to have the voice exactly. being heard, you know, be it of, of the, the youth involved or the families involved into understanding and bringing them literally a seat at the table, but also from that legal side where there, where so much, so much change or lack of change happens is once that, you know, once that voice is shared, um, eyes can open up a, a little bit wider. Uh, yeah. So we we are you know embarking and we're you know we're launching this episode in conjunction with with National Foster Care Month uh, in 2020. Of course, the purpose of the the National Foster Care Month website, which folks you can go to childwelfare.gov/fostercaremonth, all one word. The purpose of the site uh, is you know to raise awareness and to provide information about how we can support children and families who may need help. Jerry, how how important is it? that you're trying to get people to become more aware and, and actually spread the word about the initiative? You know, there's a couple of things I'd, I'd probably like to hit on there. I, I think for us to really change our child welfare system in, in a radical way, uh, to be more supportive of, of, of all the things that, that we believe are right for children and, and, and for their parents, we have to be able to change a fundamental misperception about who those families are uh, and what their circumstances are. Oftentimes, uh, it's it's strong preconceived notions. It's value judgments we make about people who um, are in particular situations who are incredibly vulnerable that create barriers uh, to us 
uh, in creating a kind of system that's responsive to their needs and helping them to avoid getting even deeper into distress. So the more we're able to put information out there to increase public awareness, I, I, I think we have a more opportunity for people in the general public uh, to be able to think um, much more humanely uh, about families who need help or who find themselves uh, in difficult situations or who, uh, quite frankly, may have made some bad decisions uh, in their lives. So that raising awareness, I think, is fundamental. Uh, it doesn't have, it doesn't need to be an event. It needs to be an ongoing process because we need to be reminded, uh, quite honestly, o- over time that many of us, if not all of us, uh, could find ourselves in that kind of a vulnerable situation, given the right circumstances, the right set of events. So raising awareness, um, uh, keeping that forefront uh, in, in all of our efforts, I, I think is essential. The other thing I'd, I'd just like to hit on around raising awareness <clears throat> is the whole notion that we hear this from parents uh, all the time, all the time. I hear from parents, they're afraid to ask for help. They're afraid that if they reveal their vulnerabilities um, and, and, and particularly going into child protection agencies, that they are A, at risk of possibly losing uh, custody of their children if they reveal uh, that, that they actually need help, or if they have lost their children and, and they're forthcoming about the need for help, that that in some way may delay their ability to get their children back. We need to change that. We need to make asking for help uh, a sign of strength, a sign of awareness uh, by parents uh, themselves and make that a non-threatening kind of situation so that they have access to critical resources that, again, any family would need in order to care for their children uh, safely. Having a website or other ways Uh, to get that information out there to help families understand what resources are available uh, and and to try to normalize that experience of asking for help can go an awful long way in reimagining what child welfare really is all about in our country. Ideally, when the system is, is a partner. And is viewed as as a partner. And and folks, this kind of reminds me of a of a recent episode on the Information Gateway podcast where we profiled birth parents and foster parents as mentoring teams, and where there was a relationship that actually was created where those misconceptions, uh, Jerry, that you mentioned, were broken down, and the idea of a partnership to work together to <laughs> support the family was uh, was you know really upheld and, and kind of fostered uh, through that. So we'll, we'll have a link to that episode as well uh, on, the, on the show notes. And so, you know, Jerry, you talked to, you used the word radical, and we are seeing this shift across child welfare of putting more energy resources into prevention, as you mentioned, including, you know, focusing on that collaboration. You know, we talked about legal and, and judicial, but there is so much collaboration among agencies, service providers, and, and community organizations. So that's executed at that local level within those counties or those or those cities or those communities. Give me a sense of what the federal government is able to do to support and encourage something like that. Well, quite quite a lot. I'm really happy that, that you ask about that because we understand uh, uh, incredibly clearly that um, the job of, of radically changing 
uh, how children and families experience the child welfare system uh, cannot reside uh, within any one federal agency or within any one national organization. Uh, we have to have a common vision. Uh, we have to have a common commitment across those federal national entities that affect the lives of kids every day uh, and, a, and an agreement that uh, we want to serve them in a certain way with a certain defined set of, of, of outcomes. With that in mind, uh, probably about a year ago, we began a partnership uh, with other federal uh, child and family service serving agencies, just as an example, the Centers for Disease Control, uh, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health uh, Agency, um, HRSA, uh, which administers a number of, of child and family serving programs, uh, children's medical services, uh, Casey Family Programs from the philanthropic community and with the legal and judicial uh, community to begin to strategize about how we can collectively have the greatest positive impact on families while reducing uh, the burdens uh, that face so many, uh, so many of our families. That's been and continues to be uh, a, a very critical part of our work in moving uh, our vision, our priorities uh, for a reimagined child welfare uh, system uh, forward. We're, we're looking to identify uh, ways in which uh, we can, um, if, if not totally blend our funding, because we all, we, we all have a, a lot of unique statutory uh, limitations that are imposed upon us, but how we can coordinate that funding, uh, how we can operate less uh, as uh, individual agencies with our own agendas and more um, as a collective that is committed to breaking down the barriers that families face every day when they're trying to access resources across uh, the, the lines of, of, of the federal uh, government. Uh, we are looking for ways that we can not only agree on a common vision uh, and a common commitment, but how we can demonstrate that we can actually work together to create those conditions out there in communities where families can thrive, where children are, are, are free from harm. And I'm as optimistic as I can possibly be that with the reception that we have and the, and the commitment from other national entities out there, that we're going to be able uh, to do that. We're going to be able to build on the strengths uh, of, of some communities out there that have already, quite honestly, gone a long way down the path uh, of, of prevention uh, here uh, and, and, and show the rest of the field that this is not just some grand idea that we have uh, or some lofty goal, but that it actually can be uh, a, a reality. So I, I really look forward to us having more conversations about how that process uh, is moving forward. Uh, with that being said, uh, let me uh, go back to just some of how you framed the question um, there. It, it is entirely necessary that we do this at, at the federal level, but we have to do it with the idea in mind that our goal is to facilitate that collaboration, that coordination at the local level where children and families live every day, where they have the ability to access services 
uh, that are so critical to their overall well-being. Regardless of what we do at the federal level, if it doesn't come together in those communities, I'm not optimistic that we're going to change the experiences uh, that children and families actually have. So we have to work at it uh, from uh, from both angles if, if we're going to be successful in moving this forward. And there are some some of those examples of that that uh, community engagement, that community that uh, common commitment. Uh, in yes. action. And so we'll point to some of those resources uh, on, on this episode's uh, webpage, especially the folks that we know you've talked about it. We've actually talked with them uh, on, on the podcast from San Diego who have uh, yes. really linked you know, agencies, uh, service providers, even universities uh, together uh, and trying to kind of take a, a large region like San Diego, which, yes, it's one county, but it's incredibly diverse, and how they've been able to, to weave those partnerships um, together. Yeah, as you're traveling across uh, the country and, and interacting with, uh, with those you know, folks, boots on the ground, I'm curious to get a sense of, from the child welfare perspective of the emerging trends and those questions and the needs that people are bringing up to you. What are you hearing as you're going around the country? Well, uh, as you might guess, depending upon the community and, and depending upon what the particular needs are, we hear different things. But uh, I, I, I love uh, your, your reference back to uh, San Diego and the whole Live Well uh, San Diego initiative out there, because I think that represents uh, one of the trends that we're beginning to see in a very prominent way, and that is a real understanding uh, around the essential need for collaboration across a lot of different entities. San Diego probably represents uh, one of the best examples out there of, of partners in the community from public, from private, from business, uh, from all kinds of sectors uh, uh, in, the, in the county out there coming together with a, a common vision that people can live well, uh, that they can be healthy. And by the way, we can begin to uh, reduce some of those very difficult and harmful things that happen to children and families when they are not able uh, to, to live well. So that, that sense of, of collaboration, I, I think, I don't think I'm premature in saying that really is a strong trend that's, that, that's emerging. How to do it is, is certainly one of the big questions uh, that we get, how to do that effectively, uh, how to overcome sometimes uh, barriers to effective uh, collaboration when you get down to nuts and bolts issues like sharing data uh, and, uh, and blending policies and, and blending funding. But the more we can point out uh, 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 the, the, and highlight the places where that really has been able to happen, I think the closer we get to that as being the norm uh, across uh, uh, across uh, the, the whole spectrum of, of child welfare. Another uh, trend, and I, I hope this is not surprising at, at all, but just the notion of prevention as, as a primary way of, of uh, intervening with children and families has been one of the most well-received messages that we get. I think when we talk about it, um, there's there's nearly universal agreement that that's where we need to go as, as a child welfare system. I think jurisdictions are struggling mightily again with how do we get there? How do we get? How do we move from a a crisis driven system uh, that is set up and has been historically uh, set up to respond to crisis uh, that's set up 
uh, to wait until we get a report of child abuse and neglect before we are able to mobilize our resources? How do we move from that to, to a system that reaches families in, in a universal way <clears throat> before any of that uh, becomes uh, becomes uh, necessary at all. Uh, I do think, uh, since you uh, uh, asked about this earlier, that there is a trend now uh, toward uh, helping to ensure that parents and kids have high-quality legal representation. Uh, that has been a really big leap uh, for a lot of jurisdictions. And in, in my years of, of working in the field and, and child welfare, I've had the unfortunate uh, opportunity uh, to see parents uh, simply not have their rights uh, respected or even acknowledged sometimes in, in complex child welfare uh, systems. We're seeing a big move uh, to get away from that and to, and to go to the point where, where parents uh, have, uh, have that opportunity. Another trend that just um, is incredibly uplifting uh, to me is, is, is a trend uh, around um, ensuring that parents and children, uh, young adults who've been a part of the system have a voice, uh, not only in their own situations, their own case planning, but in the system operations uh, themselves. I mentioned a little earlier, we, we put out some guidance on that. Uh, <clears throat> the field has, has rallied around that. Uh, we have gotten to the point uh, in, in our own work here out in the field where uh, whenever possible, uh, we prefer to be on the stage with parents to be on the stage with those young adults who are part of the system so that we give a much more holistic uh, view of, of what it is that we're trying to look for in a reimagined uh, child welfare system. As, as we facilitate that and as we give uh, agency to those um, consumers of, of, of the child welfare system, uh, we're seeing much, much more activity uh, within states at the local level uh, to help ensure that that's an institutional integrated way of doing the work. So those are just a few of the things that I, I think we see, but they're incredibly encouraging. And I, and I think the burden is, is, is on us as well as on states and, and many of our uh, national partners uh, to help understand where those things are working well, what is it that's making them working well, and how can we uh, do our part to support uh, the well-functioning changes in our child welfare system that we're looking for. You know, you actually walked right into where I was going to want to wrap up about where you saw the field going in the next five to 10 years. And and it is that kind of like, as you mentioned, I hear this, this common commitment. And I, I like that phrase, that common commitment that really can per, permeate throughout an entire community but also when you start to take that common commitment with the families themselves and kind of bring them into the fold. And so where that misconception not only comes from the public or can come from families involved, but also from the system itself. And uh, it, it, it may sound a little radical, but once you start to see it in action and then you get a sense of, you know, well, I've got the vision, but how do you know, that's point B. What's the first part of getting from point A to point B? Dr. Jerry Milner, I enjoyed this conversation, and I thank you uh, so much for, for being a part of this, for also being behind and helping champion National Foster Care Month. Um, thank you so much for being a part of us here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. 
A reminder to visit National Foster Care Month, uh, the website at childwelfare.gov slash foster care month. So if you work in foster care or your life is impacted by foster care, check out the real life stories. They're, they're really worth looking into. It is a, a series of first person accounts from professionals, from families, children and youth on their challenges and life changing experiences. There are a series of tools for organizations and others to help spread the word about National Foster Care Month and resources to help community engagement and reunify families. Now, if you head over to this episode's webpage over at childwelfare.gov, and this is episode number 48, we'll have links to everything we mentioned during our conversation with Dr. Milner, including our previous episodes focused on birth and foster parent mentoring teams and the work being done in Southern California with Live Well San Diego. We'll also share the information memorandum on engaging and utilizing family and youth voice in all aspects of child welfare to drive uh, case planning and system improvement. And that includes uh, Title IV-E reimbursement for legal services for parents, children, and youth. We'll also point you to a series series of resources on engaging youth voices from the Child Welfare Capacity Building Center for States. So lots of information on this episode's webpage. Now, if there's something else you're looking for, information on state laws and state statutes, contact information for child welfare-related organizations and groups, best practices, uh, resources and reports, or anything else that may help your work improving the lives of children and families, Hey, please don't hesitate to head on over to childwelfare.gov or reach out to our information support services team at info at childwelfare.gov. My thanks to Dr. Jerry Milner for taking the time to speak with us and for you for being a part of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. We really appreciate your time and, and your energy and joining us each and every month. So for now, I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.